This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. The Bible says that blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. So if there is a man who is blessed, is there a man who is cursed? If one is not blessed, are they by definition cursed? Or is there a gap between one who is blessed and one who is cursed, whether in, shall we say, spiritual limbo? Well, today on Viewpoint, we're going to be talking about this matter of blessing and cursing and uh, what the implications are or may be for professing Christians. You say, well, I don't believe that a a Christian could be cursed because didn't Jesus take the curse of the law upon him at the cross? Well, indeed he did. But maybe we're not talking about the curse of the law. Maybe there are other curses that are not just the curse of the law. Maybe have you considered that? So today on Viewpoint, we are going to be talking about blessing and about cursing. Now, if we were to go to the Bible and we were to look up how many times the word bless and how many times the word curse or words akin thereto, like bless and blessing and blessed and so on, if we were to look those up, what do you think we would find? Which would be predominant? Well, here's what we find. The word curse or related words occurs about 207 times from Genesis to Revelation. About 207 times. And that's, that's a lot of times. That's a lot of times of cursing. But then again, the word bless, or words akin thereto, occurs about 440, 450 times. In other words, about double. Well, God wants to bless us and not to curse us, so perhaps we should expect that difference in numbers in our own Bibles. But the question today is, are we going to rest on our laurels with regard to the blessings, or are we going to express a certain level of concern regarding the cursings because over 207 times the word curse or cursing or curse, uh, cursed, those akin words, are mentioned. Do you think that that would be a cause for concern? And how do you explain the occurrence of some people that just seem, or families, that just seem to follow a pattern that's not good? A pattern that's not good. For instance, I remember reading a history of Jonathan Edwards and his progeny, that is, his children, grandchildren, and so on. The history is amazing how they seem to be profoundly blessed throughout their generations. But then by comparison, there was a fellow who was caught in a world of crime. And when you follow his progeny, oh, it looks awful. You would definitely not want to see your family follow in that trajectory. So was one family blessed and the other cursed? Today on Viewpoint, we're going to discuss this with an open conversation with our special guest today, Alexander Pagani from the northern part of New York. 
He doesn't want to be associated with New York City because it would appear by definition, in some people's minds anyway, that that city is cursed with a curse. Now, I'm not saying that it is. I said it would appear in some people's minds. The same might be said of our national capital, particularly when you see in our national capital that it has one of the highest incidences of unwed pregnancy and fatherlessness, our nation's capital. Is our nation's capital cursed with a curse? Well, that remains to be seen or discussed. And so today on Viewpoint, Alexander Pagani joining us with his brand new book, Hitting the Bookshelves Today, The Secrets to Generation Curses. Generational Curses, Alexander, good to have you on the program, my friend. Hey, thank you, my friend. First, it's a pleasure to meet you, and it's also a pleasure to meet your uh, listeners. And I'm excited about this topic, and I'm looking forward to seeing what the Lord has. Concerning uh, present-day generational curses, either potentially active or inactive in the life of of New Testament believers. So let's go. Well, yes, let's go. Now, what you did not know is that I am currently uh, finishing up Chapter 4 of my own new book, uh, my 11th book called uh, When Persecution Comes. And one of the things that I'm noting is that persecution is oftentimes related to a generational or cultural pattern that uh, is very little that you and I can do anything about because it's so deeply embedded in the minds and hearts of those people who are persecutors. I'm not sure yet about those that are being persecuted, because Jesus said that we, if we're persecuted for righteousness' sake, we're blessed. But what if we're not persecuted for righteousness' sake? Are we cursed then, Alexander? I wouldn't say that we're that we're cursed, but I would say that there is an injustice that's actually happening at that moment, and God is mindful of injustices. And one of the things that I think. Our, your viewers, your listeners uh, need to understand is that uh, modern evangelicalism has taught us to view everything from a relational standpoint, um, which is partially true, mm-hmm. but also we are to view things from a legal standpoint. So God is still dealing with nations, groups of people, tribes, and tongues from a legal standpoint. So it could be, it could be, depending on God's predeterminate for counsel and how he's dealing with a group of people um, as to why they're going through what they're going through. And I would encourage, I guess, those group of people to press in, maybe through prayer and fasting and seeking seeking the counsel of heaven to find out exactly why they might be going through. Well, you know, it's interesting because if we look at uh, what's happening, for instance, uh, with the Middle East, uh, we look at nations that were at the very foundation of Uh, Christianity. We look at Iraq. We look at Syria, uh, for instance, nations that were uh, where where the early Christians were predominant. And now they're being driven out so that there's almost a uh, a genocidal effort within those nations to uh, curse the Christians and uh, kick them out. So uh, where, where do we find do we find any generational curses there, uh, blessings? How would you frame that? Well, you do find in Scripture 
uh, various curses and blessings pertain, uh, pertaining to groups of people, uh, we find that uh, the descendants of Ishmael were cursed with um, antagonism. It actually says uh, that the descendants of Ishmael, uh, they would perpetually be antagonistic towards their brethren all throughout their generations as a result of Abraham's mishap there. So we do find that there's maybe to some degree, maybe some kind of curse that's embedded there within the DNA of their bloodline um, that causes them to act in that manner. Very interesting. Um, we'll get back to you after this. This is a, a good place to uh, call a break. And friends, you're going to want to stay tuned because this might have implications for you. upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chrismar, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station, or anytime at saveus.org. Can a Christian have an active generational curse operating in their life through either ignorance, inheritance, or invitation? Our guest today says yes. So we need to understand why that is, how that can come about, and he says that generational curses can only be discovered two ways, by stumbling upon them unintentionally or by searching for them intentionally. So what is it going to be today? Are we going to stumble upon some of these unintentionally, or are we going to search for them intentionally? The problem with this is that once you begin to believe, for instance, in demons, then some people begin to look for demons under every chair, in every crevice of their home, and everything is demonic. Are we supposed to be looking for curses everywhere? Are we supposed to be curseologists, demonologists, or, on the other hand, are the realities concerning demons, concerning curses, that we should know about without making a fetish out of them? Maybe that's one of the things that we should deal with here today on Viewpoint. Alexander, do you have a short answer to that? I would say you summed it up pretty much. It's the reason why I wrote this book. Oh, okay. Yeah, my concern was, as a deliverance minister, I began to question um, how many times does it take for this one person to get completely set free, or is this person experiencing or going through what I call deliverance idolatry or deliverance addiction, mm. where every altar call and everything is the demon, everything is the devil or a curse, so in my quest to ask God, why does this person keep coming up for deliverance? Didn't their last deliverance session work for them? <laughs> then I began to explore the idea, yeah, the idea of maybe it's not a demonic issue. It could be a generational curse. And that was the the spark in my mind that caused me to go down this, this path of generational curses was that very same thing, specifically here uh, in the inner city amongst the minorities, there 
is a preoccupation with darkness. There is a deep demonic consciousness. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I want your, your, your listeners to know that deliverance is not fighting the darkness. It's turning on the light. Oh, That's what deliverance is. You turn on the light in a dark room, and a five-hour deliverance session can be resolved in five minutes. Rather than calling out every spirit in the dark, eventually you'll hit something, but you'll be tired. Your prayer warrior partner will be tired. And there'll be a lot of sensationalism, and the mm. person getting deliverance will be worn out. Isn't that it's interesting? Going to a dark place. Because yeah. when Jesus showed up on a situation, for instance, the demonic man uh, out there in Gennesaret, when nobody could bind him, he broke the chains and so on. But when he showed up, then all of a sudden he recognized Jesus as the deliverer, as the light, and the demons said, Why are you come to torment us before our time? So he brought the light so brightly that uh, it dispelled the darkness and the demons wanted to flee. In fact, they did flee into 2,000 swine that were drowned in the lake. So we see some realities there. You and I are not Jesus, but we are called to be light bearers and uh, to be salt and light in our time. So. We need to have some kind of insight into our own lives before we start running around trying to deliver everybody else, don't we? Right. Again, deliverance is not fighting the darkness, but it's turning on the light. Deliverance Mm. is total dependence on the Holy Spirit to reveal the root of a problem and the strategy to solve it. Now, whether that strategy is cast it out or counsel it through, you'll have the answer because the dependency will be not on the manifestation or the display of darkness or the preoccupation with curses, though there's a place for that if and when it becomes demonstrative at that moment, but it is completely dependent on the gift of discernment of spirits, which is one of the nine gifts of the Spirit, and Mm -hmm. total dependence on the person of the Holy Spirit. He knows what's going on in a person's life. If we would just calm down and not view deliverance from a place of uh, incantation rather than revelation, wow. you'll get an answer very quickly, and you'll find that um, a lot in some of the uh, demonstrative behavior uh, that we see in present-day deliverance sessions that is really nothing more than superstition and maybe a mixture of Christianity in there somewhere, you find you get a, an answer very concise, very detailed, very focused, um, and you'll see immense freedom very quickly rather than five hours of just kind of guessing or fishing or hoping your way right. through and then hit a target. Well, brother, you have, like where my mindset is. You, you've spoken very, very straightly here and uh, with a certain amount of precision, and I appreciate that, uh, because oftentimes people will do uh, what I would call a spiritual dance around issues. Instead of speaking straightly, they like to do a little dance so they can't ever be held to a clear expression of truth. But I think you have spoken directly here on this, and I think this is one of the reasons why so many within the broader evangelical church have rejected the current operation of the Holy Spirit in so many different areas called cessationism, because what they see is sensationalism. They don't see the proper application of the Holy Spirit, but they see too much flesh involved, and they say, we don't want to be a part of that. Right. Not not only displays of flesh, 
but also unscriptural practices uh-huh. being administered by deliverance ministers and those receiving deliverance afterwards. Um, if you was to parallel uh, the expressions of freedom that people that were demonized that received exorcism or deliverance, you find that it's not the same. But the, the, the contrast there. So I began to say, okay, Lord, what, what, what is going on here? Is this true deliverance or is this just, you know, the devil, mm. you know, playing around, playing around here? So right. I began to... I began to go through Scripture, and then I tried to make sure that as long as everything that we do, even the ministry of deliverance, it has to be based on sola scriptura. There you go. I I appreciate so much your, your position on that. So there are a number of reasons why people come to the conclusion that a Christian could not uh, have a generational curse or be cursed at all. Uh, can you give us a thumbnail sketch quickly, because we have so many things to talk about here, a thumbnail sketch of what some of those might be? Well, I think the number one uh, antagonist or arch nemesis for the idea of a Christian having a generation of curse or being cursed is misinformation. Right. I think... Uh, or misunderstanding that, of what the Scripture actually says. And misunderstanding yeah. as well. Um, based on... The narrative that's being perpetuated either by our biblical seminaries or our uh, uh, shepherds and leaders that are overseeing us and guiding us into all truth. Um, and it's usually the misapplication of various verses. I think the main one you quoted earlier in the introduction was the idea of, you know, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, it says Jesus became, became a curse, you know, and the idea of became for many, and I've seen this, not all hold to this, but most do, that the word became means to annihilate. Now, we have a problem there because the same author that said he became a curse also said in Second Corinthians he became sin. So if became means to annihilate, which means no longer exist, then why do we still sin? There's the a good question. You see, people right. aren't willing to follow the rest of Scripture. They like to hang on one particular verse to justify yes. a position that they want to have that feels good rather than right. bringing the whole word to bear. Right. So your listeners may ask, well, what did, what, what did the efficacy of Christ's work on the, on the cross accomplish? Very simple. Jesus broke the power of the curse, not the presence of curses. Just like Jesus broke the power of sin, not the presence of sin. Now, can a Christian have a generational curse active? I, logically, let me just use this as an example then why do we still die as Christians? We still <laughs> die. Because that was the curse that came upon Adam yes. and Eve. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So yeah. I think just logically, looking at it from a logical perspective, then we can say, oh, my God, that makes so much sense. We still die as Christians, but yet we have a blessed hope on the inside. So what does that mean? It's not a salvation issue. It means Jesus broke the power of death, not the presence of death. Now, there will be a time that the presence of death will be eradicated. First Corinthians chapter 15 talks about that, but we are not there yet. So if death, sin, hell, the curse, they're all part of the same ecosystem. They're all part of the same ecosystem. They're all part of the same network. So yes, a Christian can have a generational curse active in their life by way of causing the curse to be active, 
through ignorance, through hereditary uh, uh, information being passed down the bloodline, or marrying into someone that's cursed. And maybe we could kind of talk about that a little bit later. Right. But yes, a Christian can have a curse. You know, there are so many things. You and I could probably have a wonderful conversation here for about three or four hours. Uh, I, I sense that because uh, you you're very precise uh, in in wanting to make sure that you get a point out, but it's not misunderstood or taken right. out of the greater context of the scripture, so that we end right. up with a false understanding. So let's right. let's take an application for instance. Let's suppose that we have a parent who has been involved in. Uh, the abuse of alcohol their whole life. And so I grew up, I I didn't grow up in such an environment, but let's say uh, somebody did. They grew up in an environment in their home where their father or their mother or both of them were drunken so much of the time. Is it possible that that atmosphere, that, uh, that situation... Uh, the the attitudes, the actions, the feelings, the the environment can spill off on a person who ultimately becomes a Christian believer, and so they have problems with alcohol. Now, to answer this question, it will require a really long, drawn-out answer, and we're not going to go down that path because, for the sake of for the sake of time, there could be many factors in which a person uh, can inherit um, a generational curse. Um, But I'll give you one that I do speak about a little bit more frequently as of recent that scientifically they just discovered, and your listeners can go look this up. All right, so you're talking about what you call epigenetics. Yes, epigenetic modification, which means the cells in our body are programmed to receive information on how to behave. Okay. yeah. So with that being said, that information is predicated upon our environment, words, our understanding, television, peers, all of that can, can play a factor. Uh, but, but, but it's not absolute. Why? Because many have parents that were alcoholics and they themselves have chosen to not become an alcoholic. Then you have the opposite end. You have parents that were Christian. Right, uh, outstanding believers, and then their children all backslide and end up in the world addicted to various various drugs. What? Ultimately, at the nucleus is it really still is a matter of choice. But we can kind of flesh this out as we continue. All right. Moment. So when you mention a matter of choice, you're saying this is not, uh, shall we say, determinative. The sep- epigenetics no. thing is not determinative. It just sets a pattern that may or may not be followed? It, 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 it deposits a seed, and that seed can become a predisposition. Ah, and okay. only can become activated under the right conditions. Okay. Which means the information is still there. But unless I'm in an environment that might trigger it, then I can find myself going through life not necessarily dealing with my parents have dealt with, but it's still there. And to help your listeners even understand a little bit more when it comes to that is you could get a person that's completely fine their whole life and overnight change. And you say to yourself, but I thought brother or sister so-and-so was an outstanding X, Y, and Z. Why would they do such a thing? It's because that information had already been sitting within their genetics 
just waiting for the right condition. Okay, so the, the but they had to give sway to it. it. They had to give sway to it, and therein lies the the problem that uh, people don't recognize. They want to say, "Oh, well, I was born that way, therefore I had no choice. Therefore, I am a practicing homosexual because I was." born that way, or I'm an alcoholic because I was born that way, or I'm engaging in pornography because I was born that way. Well, uh, that leads us to some very interesting things because if we go to the scripture, we find that there was a curse that put on one of the descendants of Noah. His name was Ham, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was cursed because of something he did that was of a profoundly negative sexual nature before God. And God wasn't happy. We'll be right back after this to talk more about that. We'll be right back. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. SaveUS.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at SaveUS.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, SaveUS.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, SaveUS.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived, Save America Ministries website at SaveUS.org. of this conversation here today is so great and the applications and implications are so broad uh, but also so precise in some respects that there's just no way that we can deal with all of them here and by definition then there will be some things lots of things that will necessarily be left out and may have to be pursued by you independently or uh, through a further uh, broadcast that we will do here on Viewpoint. But I want to make our guest book, The Secret to Generational Curses, available to you. It's a $20 book, yours for $18, on our website, saveus.org, saveus.org. You can give us a call at 1-800-SAVE-USA. That's 1-800-SAVE-USA. Or write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. If you're writing a check, add $5 for postage and handling, and we're going to get it in your hands. Again, the secrets to generational curses. Now, we need to break these strongholds, and uh, when we're involved in one of these things or suspect that we might be, we certainly don't want to enter into a situation where, as the Bible says, we give place to the devil. Now, how would we give place to the devil to cause a curse, a generational curse, to come upon us individually or come upon our family? Well, let's suppose that um, your family, uh, heritage and so on, had a predisposition to 
uh, addiction to alcohol or addiction to some other substance. So you now are visiting the the bars and you're uh, purchasing alcohol for yourself and so on. Are you actually giving place to the devil? Are you actually opening up the doors to the very curse that seems to have been upon your parents so that it isn't your parents that are actually cursing you, but you're actually an active participant in carrying on that particular weakness or whatever you want to call it. Uh, Respond to that, Alexander. Well, I would say I think you answered it. You know, the book of Ezekiel actually talks about that. Mm -hmm. That a person will not be cursed to some degree based on the actions um, and the sins of their fathers, but they will die according to their own sins and their own curses. Yet the, so the Bible also says that the sins of the fathers come upon the third and fourth generations of them that hate him. Yeah. So, How do you compare those two? Well, the text there <laughs> is referring to in Ezekiel concerning death penalty. In its proper context, uh-huh. it's talking about the death penalty, which means... In the Old Testament, we find, let's use Korah as an example. Korah's mm-hmm. issue was rebellion. Right. His whole family suffered under a curse. Why? Because they all died as a result of his rebellion. The same was true for Achan. Achan and others. Yes. By the time you get to Ezekiel, I think there was an addendum to that law. God, because our Heavenly Father is not out to destroy families, but restore families. That's correct. So, Right. So at that point, he's saying the genetic predisposition or the inclination of the information already in the bloodline, that does get transferred. But the death penalty, meaning if my parents committed um, and lived a lifestyle of crime, surely they're not going to come and take me to jail. Mm. They shouldn't come and take me to jail. And I shouldn't be put if my father killed someone in, in a state where the death penalty was legal. Why would they kill me for my father's sin? Right. I think in regards to that, everyone is held accountable to their own uh, consequences of their own sin. But I would say this. If a person has alcoholism in the bloodline, why would they be, why would they be frequenting a bar? I think that's an indication that there's something already calling them mm. and pulling them to do it mm. without them realizing it. And thus, ignorance comes in which we talked about in the beginning of the broadcast, that right. ignorance is kicking in. Without realizing, they find themselves in the very same environment that took out their father or their grandfather or their family members and siblings. All right, that but takes us all the way back uh, to the book of Genesis, chapter 6, 7 and 8 and 9, uh, where after the flood, we find a very unpleasant situation taking place where Noah gets drunk. Now, we don't know that Noah had a propensity to get drunk. Some people think he did, but there's no indication in the Bible he did. We just know that he got drunk. And in his drunken state, uh, he lost control of his mind, his good mind and so on, and became unclothed or at least was exposed So his two of his sons, 
were embarrassed by this, and they walked backward to clothe their father. But Ham did not. Ham went straight forward to participate, shall we say, or glory in his father's nakedness. God cursed Ham. Now, here's the question. The Hamites, including Egypt, Egypt is all Hamites, Hamites extended into Africa and so on, they're all Hamites, does that curse go to all of the descendants of Ham? And if so, to what extent do they become responsible for their own behavior? I guess that to answer that would be a matter of debate. (laughs) You know why it's a matter of debate? Because it comes too close to arguments of racism. That's why. Right. (laughs) We don't really want to go there, but God did go there. I plead the fifth. I plead to answer that question. That's a unique pastoral approach to tough subjects. I plead the fifth. <laughs> I've never heard a pastor actually say that on the air, but you're an honest guy, I'll tell you. I, I really appreciate that. Well, here, let me let me respond to that myself then. I'll take the heat. Um, here's what I think. If you look across history, and you look across the trajectory of history for years and years and years and years and decades and centuries, what you find is, is not to the total exclusion of Hamites, but to the uniqueness of Hamites, there is a progressive and continuing problem with sexual promiscuity. Even to this country, even to this country, where the statistics show that 70% of all Hamite descendants in this country are fatherless. Why are they fatherless? Because of two things. One, divorce, and number two, sexual promiscuity. Those are the two reasons. So the problem here is, am I willing to admit that there is a, shall we say, I'll call it a latent propensity lurking deep, deep, deep in the past that actually facilitates or gives me a kind of a drawing toward sexual promiscuity. Is there such a thing? If it can be there with regard to alcohol, and if it can be there with regard to any other thing, why is it that it can't be with regard to sexual promiscuity? Am I making sense? Or are you still pleading the fifth? I, I have the right to remain silent. <laughs> because anything you say and do will be used against you. That's right. Absolutely. And somebody may just, you know, take me to task for what I just said. But quite frankly, unfortunately, that's exactly what history is showing us. And uh, now here's the other problem. There's sexual promiscuity all over the world. Right. So that does not mean that other people where their families, their parents or whatever engaged in sexual promiscuity 
have not sown those same kinds of seeds, you see. And what we find is that just as statistics and scientists are now showing that if your friends are primarily overweight, you're going to be likely to be overweight. Why? Because your associations are setting the standard for you for your own behavior and choices. Is that a curse? I don't know if that's a curse, but it's a consequence, isn't it? I would say... Are you pleading the fifth again? No. With this one, I actually would like to chime in. I actually do address this to some degree uh-huh. in, in, my, in my book. Um, I deal quite extensively with it down and further out into the chapters. Mm-hmm. But yet, God, you know, the courtroom of heaven does and still deals with people racially as a people group. I know that evangelicalism has taught us individualism, mm-hmm. yes, but, they, but God still does deal with uh, races and groups of people, tribes, and nations. And we know this because God is dealing with the nation of Israel. Exactly, right now, exactly. So to, sit, so to sit here and say God is not viewing and dealing with a people group because it just doesn't connect with our, you know, with all of the stuff that's going on with our, you know, racial indiscretions and all of that stuff, then, you know, we're not being, we're not really being faithful to the text. And exactly. God we're not being honest with ourselves or with the Bible or with the Holy Spirit. And that takes us all the right. way back to the book of Genesis again. Because God blessed Abraham, and he said, through you will all the nations of the earth be blessed. But he that curses you is going to be cursed. Oh, we like the blessing part of it, but we don't like the cursing part of it. So what do you do now with whole people groups that are engaged in, shall we say, massive persecution against Jews or the Jewish people or the Jewish nation, euphemistically called anti-Semitism. Well, one, anti-Semitism is a sin, humongous sin, and it always produces a generational curse. Um, I would say at that moment, you preach the cross. The Bible says he is able to break down the little wall of partition between Mm. races and people, and he's able to bring racial reconciliation, racial reconciliation through his blood, Exactly. All right, friends, we're going into a break. You can see there's so much to talk about. We'll be right back. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Welcome back. 
to Viewpoint, our special guest today, Alexander Pagani, with his book, The Secrets to Generational Curses, just came out and hit uh, the bookshelves today. A $20 book is for $18 on our website, saveus.org, saveus.org. Give us a call, 1-800-SAVE-USA, 1-800-SAVE-USA, or write to us at at Save Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Ready a check at $5 for postage and handling. So these generational curses can be like a stronghold, and uh, we're supposed to cast down strongholds, and we're supposed to cast down our reasonings and thoughts and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bring every one of our thoughts, and that would include our actions because our thoughts are producing the actions, into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So uh, that leads us to another aspect, uh, it seems to me, Alexander, and that is the word obey. Uh, obey the word obey uh, for the past, uh, I'd say, 25, 30 years has fallen on very hard times among professing Christians and their pastors to the point where on this program for the past five years, I cannot tell you how many uh, pastors and parachurch leaders have admitted to me openly on the air that the word obey has become the most hated word in the church. Now, if that's true, has this become kind of a, shall we say, a spirit of rebellion that has be, has incarnated itself in the very body of Christ to the point where we're bringing on a kind of curse? Because the, I mean, didn't the prophet Samuel say to, uh, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken to the fat of rams? He said to obey uh, to, to disobey is like the spirit of rebellion or witchcraft. How do we understand this? Well, it depends on the degree of the disobedience. Oh, okay. So if I yeah, tell a so white lie, then it's okay. There's no curse. But if I tell a black lie or a gray lie, there might be a curse. <laughs> is that what you're saying? <laughs> We're just having a good brotherly conversation here, aren't we? <laughs> First John talks about sins that do not lead to death right. and sins that lead to death. The following verse, I genuinely believe, and this is just me being, you know, Christian, maybe nippy with, with your listeners, is I think he wrote the verse after that. He said, John said, all wickedness is sin, comma, but not all sins lead unto death. Yes. Meaning, a white lie is still a sin. Would it necessarily take a person to hell? That is yet to be determined. But it is still a sin. All right, so if one to... tells a white lie, often enough, it leads to a pattern of telling lies that becomes gray lies, and then black lies, and then very black lies... So it looks like a cover story of Newsweek magazine back in 1993, <laughs> where it's, the, there was a man uh, with sunglasses on the front cover. On one lens, it said lying. On the other lens, it says everybody's doing it honest. Hmm. <laughs> so that was the characteristic of 
America. And in 1990, two advertising executives came out with a book called The Day America Told the Truth. And Chapter 4 is called American Liars. And they said that 94% of all Americans lie regularly, conscious, premeditated lies. What do you make of that? Is that become a generational curse in America? Okay, so... Based on your analogy from white to gray (laughs) (laughs) to black, that's looking at it from a moral perspective. Mm -hmm. Now, let's listen to – now, let's look at it from a legal perspective. Good, because I'm a lawyer. Right. You got violation. Now you got sin. Then you got transgression. Now you got iniquity. Mm. It's the same thing. So violation are predicated upon our sinful nature, not meditated, unpremeditated, you, you lied. Okay, now you ask God to forgive you. Now, if you're making it a habit to lie, now you're in the transgression of lying. Uh-huh. And now, now, now there's a different level of consequence. This is why we have robbery in the first degree, robbery in the second degree, robbery in the third degree. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't be getting life in prison because I stole a bag of apples. But nevertheless, I still should be getting a penalty because of it. If, unless you live in New York City <laughs> or in Seattle, and then you can go into a Nordstrom and you can take anything you want without penalty. You said that. And I, agree with that. <laughs> I agree. I agree. So I would say if a Christian is making the habit of lying, yes. they are violating. First John chapter three that says the seed of the word of God lives in them, and they cannot continue in sin because they're born of God. If they continue in sin, then First John chapter three is actually saying it would put in question whether they're even really born of God, depending mm. on the level of the lie that they keep perpetuating, as opposed to you lied and it's it's not worth being damned to the second death because of it. Though still wrong. I wouldn't say someone would be going to hell, but if you're listening to me, don't lie. Don't lie. It is that's the moral. Lie. That's the moral of the story because <laughs> you know once you begin down that track, you are setting a trajectory that even your kids will follow. For instance, the parent who who receives a phone call and doesn't want to answer, the kid picks up the phone and the parent says, "Tell him I'm not here." Now, how often does a parent say that until he's actually inserted in his children's minds and hearts that lying is an appropriate thing, whether or not you're a Christian or not? I guess we're all going to have to repent at this point. (laughs) (laughs) No wonder the word repent is the most positive word in the Bible. It's the only hope we have, isn't it, Alexander? Yes, yes. So I think I think we all need to have a change of mind and repent as concerning telling them we're not home. I think I think we may have might have all done that to some degree. Yeah. I well, wouldn't say that we would be cursed as a result of that. I yeah. Mean, it wouldn't be okay. But you could have set up a pattern. That's yeah, the problem. Of lying. It's not of once history. just doing it once. It's setting up the pattern where the children right follow in the trajectory or the jet stream of the parents. That's just another way of saying the curse is being set. Exactly. And then that will lead to ultimately leading to deceit and walking in deceitfulness. Mm. So now they've made it 
now they're the the the, the, the nature of who they are as a person has been altered as a result of living their whole life lying or white lying from white lies to gray to black and now they are black or they are a liar as opposed to a christian who's lying Mm-mm-mm. wow you know uh, let me ask you a question do you have kids i have two sons one is 29 the youngest is 21, and I have two granddaughters. One is going to be four, and one is going to be one. You know, um, I asked you that question because as a father and as a grandfather, I'm keenly aware of these things and have been since the moment of the birth of our first child, who is now uh, one half century old, which tells you a little bit about my age. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have we had three daughters. We have eleven grandchildren, and uh, I am deeply concerned and deeply aware as to what my own attitudes, behaviors, influence over time has had or is having upon our extended family. Do you have that same sense? Yes, I do. Uh, in both my sons, um, they have, you know, there's this dichotomy. There's this, um, both of them have two parts of me. My oldest is completely engulfed in ministry, loves God with all of his heart. Mm. My youngest loves the Lord, but he's not as committed uh, to ministry as my oldest is. Mm-hmm. Now, my youngest has my personality as a person. My oldest uh-huh. does not. Uh-huh. My youngest, if you speak to my youngest, or every time my youngest, who's 21, um, acts out or is himself, m- my wife is always saying, that's you right there. Let's, well, let's no, wait a minute. Is that a curse you. or a blessing? I would... <laughs> <laughs> you know, honestly, sometimes I wonder. I wonder sometimes. <laughs> I go, okay, God, and I'm consistently praying, like, Lord, let, let this not be the bad part of me. Uh-huh. Let him also have all of my good of me, you know? So yeah. that's yet to be determined as, you know. I'm From God's viewpoint. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't have a definitive answer for that, but definitely we can see the genetic traits of patterns of behavior, mm. unspoken patterns of behavior, both spoken and unspoken. I do see them in both my sons. Mm-hmm. Some are good, and then others others make me pray. <laughs> that's that's so good, Alex. <laughs> you know, I, I just am thoroughly enjoying this conversation with you because uh, you're incredibly straightforward and honest. You're not playing games. And we're talking about something here that has serious implications, but we're not running around and saying, you're cursed with a curse. We're not doing that. Uh, what we're saying is there are reasons why we get into a situation, as the Scripture clearly says, the curse causeless shall not come. In other words, there are right. reasons why, and you have set forth many of those reasons in your book, even in a chapter called Degrees of Disobedience and Levels of Uncleanness. We've alluded to some of that, but we haven't gone into depths in it. So... Friends, the book is uh, worthy. Uh, At first, I was a little concerned about doing this because most people 
my experience is that most who want to delve into things like generational curses and so on are getting into what I would call sensationalism and demon hunting. And uh, what you have learned, what I have learned in our conversation here today, that's not where our guest is going. So the book is a $20 book. Yours for $18 on our website, saveus.org, saveus.org. You can give us a call at 1-800-SAVE-USA. That's 1-800-SAVE-USA. Or you can write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check and $5 for postage and handling. Now, uh, I want to give you one last uh, minute or so here uh, to uh, really pour out your heart. About one minute, Alexander. About one minute. You know, for those of you that are watching, here's what we didn't discuss in this interview, and it's this. Um, I used to preach against generational curses or a Christian having a demon. I embraced this revelation, for those of you that are tuning in, already as a pastor. You know, the reason why, and I joke, uh, you know, about the reason why I'm so effective at deliverance is not because I'm special. It's because I'm deliverance's number one client. I got set free from a generational curse of destruction and a couple of other things that I talk about in my book. And I embraced the ministry of deliverance as a pastor because I was vehemently opposed to it. My biblical seminary training taught me that a Christian wasn't, couldn't be cursed, and a Christian couldn't have a demon. Yet, I had a demon— and I had curses active in my life, you mm. know. So all I'm asking for those of you that are listening, whether you're for or against, is to reconsider and just read the book and make your own determination based on the Holy Spirit shows you as you're being a good Berean. There you if go. If you found our conversation very fruitful and well-balanced, that you're going to find a lot of that. That is book. a good wrap-up word there. Again, our special guest, Alexander Pagani, and, uh, you know, I thought he was Italian. He said, no, I'm not Italian. I'm, what, Jamaican? I'm French? I'm." He's all mixed up, friends, but his message is not mixed. Oh, Puerto Rican. But his message is not mixed up. And so I urge you to get a copy of the book, The Secrets to Generational Curses. Thanks for joining us. Become a partner, friends. Send your gifts by faith to Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 2325. Don't wait for the other guy to do it. He's not doing it. You do it if the Holy Spirit calls you to do so. God bless and be a blessing. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.